0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: The Wisconsin Legislature's Joint Committee on Finance approved a $283 million plan to invest more in state highways and local roads. The plan prioritizes spending on local roads and bridges, as well as 22 state highway projects that are planned for future years. According to the Wisconsin Society of Civil Engineers' Infrastructure Report card, the state received a D-plus in roads and C-plus in bridges in 2020.
0: A Dane County judge has set a June 10th hearing date to determine whether Michael Gableman should be found in contempt for breaking the state open records law over his response to requests from the watchdog group American Oversight. According to the Capitol Times, Gableman and his staff had been deleting records they determined to be irrelevant or useless in a Republican-led probe of the 2020 presidential vote in the state. Gableman was hired by Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to investigate President Joe Biden's win in Wisconsin and is paid $11,000 per month, according to Channel 3000. His contract was supposed to wrap up this week, but will continue on without funding from taxpayer money, according to Voss.
1: The Dane County Sheriff's Office will pilot 25 license plate surveillance cameras this summer. Through a partnership with the National Policing Institute, these cameras will gather license plate images and details and upload them to a cloud that matches the information with law enforcement databases. The National Police Institute claims that these cameras are effective tools to improve stolen vehicle recovery and auto theft arrests, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The sheriff's office hasn't decided yet where these cameras will be placed.
0: The city of Madison plans to convert nearly half of its street medians with planting beds to turf or concrete. This is due to budget constraints as the city cut funding for the maintenance of these planting beds from $165,000 in 2021 to $86,422 this year, the State Journal reported. As the cost for maintenance of these green mediums rose, the city had trouble finding maintenance contracts. Not everyone supports this plan, though. Elder Brian Benford believes that more plantings in trees would help increase safe driving behaviors and bring communities together to help maintain them. And now on to today's top stories.
1: A community board intended to bring more oversight and accountability to the Madison Police Department has been facing a lawsuit since last summer. That lawsuit, brought by a local conservative blogger and politician, contends that the way the board was established, via a race-specific city ordinance, was illegal. Now, Madison may be getting ready to change how the board is composed. WRT producer Nate Buggehout has more.
2: Madison's Police Oversight Board is considering whether to change how the board is composed, and specifically, whether to remove racial quotas from the board's membership from city ordinance. The change was introduced by Madison City Attorney Michael Haas, who says that, though the Police Oversight Board is free to discuss the new ordinance, the full Common Council will decide on the change. The proposed
3: ordinance would slightly change the uh, language that the City Council originally passed governing how members of the Civilian Oversight Board are appointed, and essentially what it does is take out a requirement that members come from different racial backgrounds, and it changes that language to say that the city will strive to obtain membership that includes individuals of, of those backgrounds.
2: The Madison Police Civilian Oversight Board was established in 2020 after years of discussion and months of setup work. When the Common Council created the board, it wrote into city ordinance that the board must contain at least one black, Asian, Latino, Native American, and LGBTQ member. Additionally, the council also adopted an ordinance to have at least half of the board members be black. Last summer, local conservative blogger and former local politician David Blasca filed a lawsuit against the city saying those membership requirements amounted to a racial quota. Blasca, a white man, said that he was discriminated against due to his race when he applied for and was denied a seat on the board. At the time... Alaska told WORT that the ordinance was unconstitutional.
3: I can think of no other governmental body uh, at any level, state, federal, or local, that uh, bases membership on race. there's a good reason for
2: that blaska was represented in the lawsuit by the wisconsin institute for law and liberty or will a conservative legal firm will argues that the ordinance as written is unconstitutional and violated blaska's civil rights ha says that the lawsuit is still ongoing in federal court and no hearing date has been set ha says that attorneys representing the city have been in talks but have not reached any settlement in the lawsuit. Dan Lennington is Will's deputy counsel and the lead attorney on the lawsuit. He says Will would be willing to drop the lawsuit if the council removes race-based membership requirements from city ordinance. And if it's passed on May 10th, uh, we will agree
4: to dismiss our lawsuit in exchange for payment of attorney's fees and, and damages, and that will depend on... Uh, uh, on some further negotiations and reducing this to a, a settlement agreement.
2: City Attorney Michael Haas. We did
3: review it in light of the lawsuit. Uh, we believe there's a way to accomplish the same goals that the city council has without having language that might be you know, subject to a court challenge.
2: The ordinance co-sponsors, including Alders Yannette Figueroa-Cole, Juliana Bennett and Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway declined WORT's request for comment on the matter, saying that the ordinance change was a legal matter to be handled by the city attorney. The ordinance change is expected to go before the full council on May 10th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Waggi hout
0: Last week, the family of Quadron Wilson met in downtown Madison to ask why they still have received no information as to why he was shot multiple times by state law enforcement. WORT reporter Greg Jabosky has more.
4: On Thursday, on Capitol Square, a group of activists and members of the family of Quadron Wilson met to demand action into the investigation of the shooting of the 38-year-old Wilson. A little after 8 in the morning on Thursday, February 3rd, at American Parkway in East Park Boulevard in East Madison, Quadron Wilson, an unarmed black man being monitored under custodial supervision, was in a car that was slammed in the front and rear by 21 law enforcement officers from five different state and local agencies, and shot multiple times in the back, in what the Dane County Sheriff described as at the time, only as an officer-involved shooting. Weeks later, the identities of the two officers who shot Wilson were identified as Mark Wagner and Nathan Pesky, special agents of the state's Department of Criminal Investigation, or DCI. The family of Quadron Wilson says that, in the over two months since the shooting, they've heard of no further action being taken into its investigation, beyond the identification of the officers involved. King Rick, an activist who has acted nationally and has stayed in Madison to help the family with its case, had this to say on Thursday. We are here today to continue our fight demanding justice for Quajun Wilson. He has been shot in his back numerous times. He has contracted many infections while incarcerated at the Dane County Jail. The report was done months ago, weeks ago, sitting on the DA's desk. Norm Morris, Quaden Wilson's father, is disturbed by what he sees as the lack of response by law enforcement officials. And nobody said sorry to us yet. They ain't told us nothing yet. It's like a conspiracy to me. Members of Wilson's family commented on what they saw as a stark discrepancy between how Madison and Dane County law enforcement had widely publicized the April 4th homicide of Daryl Collins Jr. outside of Dane County Jail. While joining in the condemnation of the murder of Collins, Wilson family members said they don't feel that the publicity and calls for punishment in that case should have been any more intense than when it was police doing the shooting. Here is Maine Morris, Quadron's brother, speaking on Thursday. The
5: thing is, why did they quickly put those guys on the news? Why did they quickly call of assassination. What was the difference from what the cops did to my brother than what the kids did to that guy downtown? There was no difference. That's the same way they did my brother. The only thing is my brother lived. So why are those people being exposed and charged so quick
4: and these DCI cops are still on the couch at home? That was Maine Morris, brother of Quadron Morris, who was shot by DCI Special Agents Mark Wagner and Nathan Pesky in East Madison on February 3rd. Although law enforcement did not release charges against Wilson at the time of the shooting, he has since been charged with fentanyl distribution. That case is being tried in the Dane County Circuit Court. At broadcast time, we have no further word from Dane County into the investigation into the shooting of Quadron Wilson. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabosky.
1: Frigid winter-like temperatures are chilling Madison again after a warm and sunny weekend. WRT weather producer Caitlin Davis
6: has more on what to expect into the evening. Cars and houses are switching from air conditioning back to heat as a cold front makes its way through after the beautiful sunny weekend. The high for today is 34 degrees below Saturday's high of 80 here in Madison. Temperatures are currently sitting at right around 43 degrees with a continued partly cloudy condition. Some mixing of gusty northwest winds will bring some partial sunshine into the evening before the sun sets. Winds are consistently sitting at 11 miles per hour coming from the north. The wind chill leaves temperatures to feel about 5 degrees shy of the actual outside temperatures. The pressure in the atmosphere is decreasing from its current 30.2, which could lead to a low barometric pressure, which is considered to be anything that is 29.80 and lower. The result of the low-pressure and low-pressure system indicated why the conditions we are seeing are partly cloudy. The humidity in the atmosphere also dropped from the weekend and are currently sitting at right around 43%. A year ago today, the high was 75 degrees. Again, about a 30-degree drop from today's conditions. The historical average for April 26th is 61.3 degrees for a high and the low sitting at 39.7. Unfortunately for us... We are still experiencing those frigid temperatures and Saturday was only what we hoped would be our spring weather finally arriving. Overnight, the temperatures will be dropping down to a chilly 29 degrees. Later into the day tomorrow, the temperatures will rise to right around 45 degrees with cloudy conditions and winds coming from east-northeast. Winds shouldn't be as high as we've been seeing, but they will still be prominent. Thursday's temperatures are likely to reach the low 50s with possibility of some showers later in the evening Wind speeds will also be picking up, still likely blowing from the east southeast. With WRT, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis.
0: It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, black infant mortality rates in Wisconsin are the highest in the nation. To address this issue, the Dane County Health Council teamed up with the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness to launch a new program to assist black women and birthing persons. The program, called Connect Rx, aims to connect black mothers with medical and community resources to assure the health of their children to learn more about the program WORT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with the founder CEO and president of the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness Lisa Payton Care
2: So Lisa what is the Foundation of Black Women's Wellness and then sort of going from there what is your new program Connect RX
5: Yeah so the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness is a nonprofit organization based in Dane County Wisconsin but serving the entire state, um, and we exist explicitly to advance Black women's health. So we do our work through many channels. Uh, We do a great deal of direct service work to Black women in Dane County uh, around health promotion, education, as well as leadership development, advocacy work uh, to advance policies and system-level practices that truly promote and advance black women and, and work to undo and dismantle uh, the long-standing health and birth disparities that we've experienced uh, in Wisconsin uh, for decades now around black women's health. Um, and the project that uh, we're speaking about today, Connect Our Rx, uh, Saving Our Babies, is really an outgrowth of, of that level of work and partnership that we've been doing now for a decade to really change the landscape of Black women's health in Wisconsin.
2: ConnectRx. What is ConnectRx? What will it do for uh, Black women?
5: Yeah, so what's important to understand about ConnectRx is we had a press conference last week at the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness with our partners at the Dane County Health Council. Um, ConnectRx is one piece of really a broad multi-year a truly unprecedented partnership between our four major health systems in Dane County, along with partners United Way, uh, Public Health Madison Dane County, Access Community Health Centers, which is our federally qualified health centers, and the Madison Metropolitan School District, who all together uh, form the Dane County Health Council, which has existed for about 20 years. And so, uh, We created this partnership called the Saving Our Babies Initiative in 2018 uh, when they asked us to come to the table as a trusted community partner connected to black women in community who are the most impacted by this issue of birth disparities. And after nine months of doing a very deep analysis of the problem, of the root causes by talking with over 300 black mothers, women, men, fathers, childbearing age youth, um, along with our partner, Equity by Design, who's also a very respected uh, organization, we listen to black women, we listen to black community, and we generated a report uh, called the Saving Our Babies Report that really chronicles, if you really want background information, all the stats data on the true root causes as spoken by a community and through our own analysis of system structures and community voice, uh, we compiled all of that in the Saving Our Babies report. Um, And There were many recommendations in that report that came forward, and care coordination was one of them. Um, Care coordination is really a best practice uh, where uh, health systems connect with social service providers and community to really create a very coordinated, integrated way of meeting not only the clinical health needs of patients, but also the social um, economic needs, what we call in healthcare, the social determinants of health, because we know the root causes of birth inequities and health inequities have a lot more to do than with what is happening outside of the clinic in terms of a family stability, their access to uh, stable housing, food security, transportation, living wage work, you know, mental health support if they needed, you know, stable employment, all of those things. And so ConnectRx is, is one of those pieces that we created out of a set of recommendations to address the issue of better care coordination. Um, that digs at how we help stabilize the families of black pregnant people, mothers birthing people here in the county who we know overwhelmingly and disproportionately face social and economic barriers that have been well chronicled and a massive number of reports <laughs> that I'm sure you've reported on in the past, Race to Equity and other reports that have shown uh, the vast uh, existence of racial disparities, health, education, economic justice system, whatever it may be. So ConnectRx is an integrated care coordination network or a model that we've built specifically to meet community needs here in Dane County among pregnant uh, black women and birthing people. And it uses existing electronic health record technology um, that is you know, produced by uh, a little, you know epic systems, which everyone knows, existing technology, but with a new twist that we designed as a collaborative between the health council and the foundation and our partners that bridges healthcare, social services, and trusted community-based organizations into this closed-loop network um, that really helps patients secure their health, medical, and non-medical needs, and all of this. Screening for what the patient needs happens within the clinic, but then they're referred out through this electronic system to providers, including community health workers, doulas, and other organizations to help them rapidly uh, address some of those other social and economic barriers that came forth in that screening process uh, within the clinic.
2: And, of course, it also coincided with Black Maternal Health Week, which happened just before you announced this, I believe about two weeks ago. What is Black Maternal Health Week and can you tell me what you guys did for Black Maternal Health Week there?
5: Well, to sum it up, Black Maternal Health Week is a national observance um, that was uh, launched five years ago by another powerful Black woman-led organization, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. Uh, which sprang forth to really address this issue, which is a national issue. So as you're hearing me talk about uh, the crisis of black maternal and child health outcomes in Wisconsin, uh, it's mirrored across the United States, and it's a persistent issue that all states have been uh, working to address um, for decades, but again, with overwhelmingly uh, alarming outcomes in Wisconsin. Um, So when we... Uh, recognize that movement several years ago, we began to observe it here with intention in Wisconsin and in Dane County to really move the conversation forward on our local efforts. And it really is a week to really delve into the issues, uh, to bring greater visibility, awareness, public accountability, and to update all in the movement about policy actions um, that need to be taken um, to to change uh, the reality of this issue. So here in Madison, Greater Madison area, um, we actually announced <laughs> uh, during Black Maternal Health Week uh, this, this iteration of our Saving Our Babies initiative work with the launch of ConnectRx. Um, and we've spent a great deal of time um, preparing all of our partners for this, uh, this big announcement, um, which happened two Thursdays ago. Um, our state senator, uh, Tammy Baldwin was present, who's an ally and supporter and partner in this work, who's also lobbied at the national level for federal, um, policy action on this issue through the momnibus package that's been presented at, at the federal level. She's also Sponsored, um, you know, work here in Wisconsin and the legislature supported statewide initiatives um, around the same issue and so we were very grateful to have her there and of course Mayor Satya Rose Conway was present who's always been a supporter of the foundation and this broad work um, and obviously our partners at the Dane County Health Council who have really taken steps that health systems don't typically make to to more deeply invest and focus with community, and in this case with Black women who are most impacted, to co-create a major solution. So we we talked about that work uh, during Black Maternal Health Week, um, and prepared, of course, for last week's Black Maternal and Child Health Summit, which we just hosted this past Thursday. Um, and what we say during the Black Maternal health month that we claim April to be um, and that was really our local local meaning our our county and statewide conversation to mirror the national effort to keep black maternal child health um, top of mind um, amongst decision makers and in our own community of advocates birth workers and organizations working uh, to turn the tide
2: well I've been Talking with Lisa Payton Kerr, the founder, CEO, and president of the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness. Lisa, thank you for all your work and thank you for talking with me here today.
5: Thank you so very much.
0: You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT.
1: Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call dives into student government elections at UW-Madison and looks at three candidates running for ASM chair.
0: Wildlife Weekly shares the story of one longtime and very small resident of the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center.
1: And radio astronomy gazes into the accomplishments of amateur stargazers.
0: But now i will take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
1: is now 6 and you're listening to the local news on wort i'm sarah hopeful here with christian Knutsen. thanks for joining us
0: every tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the daily cardinal one of uw Madison's student newspapers to learn the latest news from campus this week cardinal call host hope Carnop spoke with news reporter katrina callas about the three candidates running to become the associated students of madison's new chair
7: i think that it'll be Really interesting to see whoever gets selected. Um, like how student council will change from this year to next year.
8: Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. On Sunday, the 29th session of the Associated Students of Madison met for the first time and elected a chair, vice chair, and other leaders in the organization. The chair of the new session of ASM is Ndamasia Fonkam, who will be a junior next year. She served as the diverse engagement coordinator in the last session of ASM. Three students ran for ASM chair, which was previously held by Adrian Lampron. Their campaign platforms point to issues that have evolved over the academic year. Candidates focused on diversity and inclusion, and allowing all students to have a voice. Two students running also supported a $15 minimum wage on campus. In March, the student body voted in favor of a referendum that asked about raising the minimum wage to $15 for all campus workers. The referendum stated that ASM does not have complete control over the minimum wage and recognizes the potential costs of raising segregated fees and tuition if the minimum wage was raised. One student also focused on affordable housing, including expanding student cooperative housing like Zoe Bayless, which is said to be displaced by the new Levy Hall building. I'm joined today by campus news writer Katrina Callas to learn about the student candidates for ASM Chair and their platforms.
9: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Katrina. Thank you for having me. Can you describe the role of the ASM Chair and what their responsibilities are?
7: The ASM Chair is just sort of like a voice for the students and also like the staff at Madison. Um, Any changes that any students want made, it's sort of like a student run organization that um, is sort of just a voice for the students that helps them with anything that they need. Can you give us some background information about the students who are running for ASM chair? The um, junior, Stephen Schitt, he will be a senior next year. If he was elected, he would be the first international student to be elected to this position. So he really just wanted to make a statement with that. And so he worked really hard to um, campaign and work with the student council already to prepare for um, that position if he were to be elected. And then Ndamasia Fonkam, she will be a junior next year. She's a sophomore. And she, I didn't get to interview her. So I just read her campaign email that came out, but she is just running for ASM chair. And she's focused on a lot of the same things as Steven Shit. they both focused a lot on diversity and Increasing the minimum wage to $15. They both basically just want the school to be more inclusive and just help like the students and staff at Madison. And then Maxwell Lovenstein, like Andamazia Funkum and Stephen Shi, he just wants to create more inclusivity and support for all of the students at Madison.
9: So when you talked to Stephen and Charlie, who are running for chair and vice chair, they responded to your request for an interview. What did they tell you about why they're interested in that role?
7: Charlie Fahey, he said that he's always sort of been interested in like politics and um, the student council. He He's only a freshman, so he'll be a sophomore next year. At his high school, he was involved in the student council. And so he just found, found out about ASM before he came to Madison and just became interested in it. And then Stephen Shit actually had a really interesting story as to why he wanted to be part of the student council and run. He said that one of his friends or someone on the student council had made a comment about why he would be like, why would he be on the student council? Because he's not even from America. So he thought that was really odd. So he sort of said that out of spite, he decided to join the student council and then he just got really interested in it from there.
9: Yeah, as you mentioned, he would be the first international student elected to this role. What did he say about that and about his plans to work on diversity and equity on campus?
7: So he talked about how he thought that Madison sort of focused on just like one or two minority groups on campus. And so he didn't think that Other minority groups, such as Jewish students and international students, had much of voice. So he wanted to create a space where more students could just come in and talk about their experiences and not feel like they're excluded from the conversation because they might not be in other minority groups that get more attention on campus, he thought.
9: What were some of the other issues that the other candidates brought up and were part of their platforms that they're running on?
7: Charlie was very similar to Stephen shib because they're running sort of hand in hand. He's running for vice chair. They were both interested in increasing the minimum wage to $15 and just creating a space where all students' voices could be heard, no matter like their politics, um, their background. And then and Damasia she also had very similar wants for if she got elected, obviously increasing the minimum wage. Also, she wanted to be an advocate for um, more affordable student housing options and the expansion of student cooperatives. And so she wanted to focus on like a lot of monetary adjustments on campus and just make Madison a more like cohesive community altogether
9: is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story and the students running for ASM chair
7: I think I think each candidate just has a lot that they want to accomplish so I think that it'll be really interesting to see whoever gets elected um like how student council will change from this year to next year great
9: thank you so much for coming on the show
7: yeah thank you for having me
8: Campus News. Speaking of Zoe Bayless, UW Housing offered the cooperative a space in Phillips Hall, according to an April 11th email statement from Assistant Vice Chancellor of University Communications John Lucas. The plan would include renovating part of the first floor of Phillips Hall to make space for 34 residents in a cooperative community. Phillips Hall is located in the Lakeshore Residence Halls community, while the current Zoe Bayless location is at the intersection of Johnson and Park Street. Phillips Hall is also home to the open house, which is a learning community for LGBTQIA plus and allied students. A university spokesperson said the arrangement would be similar to how the cooperative has functioned, with power over rent rates, leasing agreements, and a private chef. However, the cooperative voted against the proposal over concerns about an increase in rent prices and a chance that the space would not be ready for the fall of 2023. UW Housing has said that it has intentions to go forward with plans to renovate Phillips Hall into a cooperative-style community, whether Zoe Bayless decides to move into the building or not. A fundraiser is being held at Zoe Bayless on Friday, April 29th at 6 p.m., with guest speakers Representative Francesca Hong and District 8 Alder Juliana Bennett. The campus and the UW athletics community are mourning the loss of UW-Madison Jr. and track and field and cross-country athlete Sarah Schultz. Her family announced on April 15th that she took her own life. On a website, her family described balancing athletics, academics, and the demands of everyday life. University Athletics said in a statement Friday that the Wisconsin athletics community is heartbroken by her passing and that their primary focus is supporting the family and student-athletes. A service was held Sunday at Memorial Union. The family has set up a foundation in her name to support causes including women's rights, student-athletes, and mental health. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. This Thursday, we will publish the final print edition of the spring semester and this academic year. You can find a list of our print locations on our website under the About Us tab. We also publish our print editions digitally on our website. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at (laughs) UW-Madison.
1: Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg tells us all about one longtime resident of the Dane County Humane Society's Animal Rehabilitation Center, the red headed hummingbird. To oh,
10: oh. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about our beautiful overwintering ruby-throated hummingbird who's been with us in care since September 2021. So it's been a while for this bird, and I know we've given some radio updates about how we might overwinter hummingbirds in our care, but I thought it'd be fun to kind of talk about this patient in particular. particular and kind of go through the process of what we saw as rehabilitators when he was first admitted Um, and then also talk about their migration because we are getting so close to the point of release for this bird and it's kind of exciting to see the new arrivals that are coming in here for the state of Wisconsin. So ruby throated hummingbirds are our most common hummingbird species that are found here in the state. Normally I'd say the only one but we have had a few rare hummingbirds that have come through which we might consider accidental or off the path of migration. But this little hummingbird, of course, was probably on its way to migrate to Central America or Mexico, which is where most of our hummingbirds will go to. Their northern areas and their breeding grounds are in the southern U.S. for the most part, but they will definitely migrate a very long distance, which is pretty amazing. Their distance actually can show that it's as much as 23 miles in a single day, which can you imagine? I mean, I I can run like two miles and that's about it. Tiny little hummingbird to go 23 miles in a day. That's incredible. So we had this little hummingbird who was admitted in September. Um, It was patient number 2,258 for the year, and we do track those every year for admission. Every animal gets its own identification number, and that starts over in January, the first of the year. So, this little hummingbird weighed 2.72 grams on admission, which is pretty light for a hummingbird. Uh, Generally, in normal ranges, we'll see between three and four grams, which is incredibly light, and its attitude was really depressed. You know, a few periods of higher energy and activity as the day went on, and then we did notice that, of course, it was a male hummingbird by the red throat feathers that were molting in, but only a little bit. And we also used the the primary tip to look at the shape, and that can help tell the difference between a male and female hummingbird. That's according to some of our professional master banders here in our area. Its head was tipped back, it was stargazing, and that's really notable, you know, because generally we think of depression and stargazing and just a depressed attitude to indicate some sort of head trauma or physical trauma. So the guess was that it was probably a window strike, Uh, maybe saw a reflection or got close to a feeder on a window somehow, but, you know, missed. Um, It's kind of difficult to to say what distance that could have been nearby or if it just saw a branch it wanted to land on. Uh, we do have quite a number of hummingbirds that come in with significant injuries due to window strikes. That's actually one of our more common window strike patients. So he was also ataxic, which means that it was abnormal ambulation or moving, and it could only fly in a small circle pattern. Um, so definitely not a good sign. Uh, and it was also open mouth breathing, labor breathing, and it could only do short flights. So we gave it oxygen support. We were able to give it some very uh, low-grade meloxicam, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, so to help with some pain management. But they're so tiny, it's incredibly hard to dose. We actually had to get a special, you know, solution of a. a different concentration made up by one of our local pharmacy consultants. And then after a little while, you know, we were able to offer some hummingbird nectar, and that's where it started eating really readily. And so it was really touch and go there for a couple of days. You know, hummingbirds are very, very delicate, and it's it can be difficult to rehabilitate them. Sometimes they're just so high stress, and their metabolism is so high that it's difficult to honestly keep them in care. We do a really good job at DCHS, but, you know, it's always an unsure prognosis when they come in, you know, is it successful? Is it going to be successful? Do we think it's a guarded prognosis? Maybe good? Well, in this case, you know, after a couple of days, then it started to regain some flight ability. It was still circling a little bit, but then we decided to move to a standard, you know, neurological recheck by staff every two days. And over time, it really did improve, which is great. And so even about four days later, we did notice that it was definitely still trending upward in a good way. And there was no obvious head tilt um, by the end of September the weight was up just a little bit, it would still drop in some elevation and flight, and it was still struggling to fly very well. But we did decide, okay, well, we don't want to chance it for migration that this bird is not going to be able to make it all the way to its destination, because it's a very long distance. And so really, it took until October 11th for us to, to say, okay, we think it's flying pretty well. It's flying high, easily able to avoid capture. It wasn't flipping or circling. But that was like touch and go. That was like, okay, a couple days, had gone by, and there wasn't any abnormal symptoms that remained, and the weight had gone up to 3.28 grams, which is really, really good. With this bird, you know, obviously unable to fly well, their feather condition can be really difficult to manage and care, because if they can't fly well, it means that they'll drop to the ground, or they might hit some of their, you know, enrichment that's in the cage, and that can damage the tips of their feathers, but we know the molt timing of these birds, and so in this particular case, we thought, well, we want to make sure he Neurologically normal. And since, you know, he was on the ground not flying super well, you know, the feathers became abraded with time. So let's go ahead and keep him over winter so that he can go through a full molt and be able to really, truly get that. Staff recheck to know he's going to be 100%. And believe it or not, it is now April 2022, right? And we are seeing the constant buzz of this hummingbird in its beautiful overwintering tent. It's exercising, it's eating, it is very much getting itself ready for release. It loves getting spritzed with some water because it's helping to keep its feathers in good condition, and a whole bunch of their feathers are molting because we were able to keep a staggered time light on the hummingbird to mimic natural conditions. And so now hummingbirds are migrating. Into Wisconsin, and there are maps that show the highlights of migration activity. So I definitely encourage folks to check out hummingbirdbirdcentral.com. They have a whole migration map, and you can report sightings. You can also do that on eBird as well. But it's really neat to see where all the different hummingbirds are migrating to and from. So it's got a really nice interactive map with some beautiful hummingbird, you know, icons on it of different colors. So really neat. Definitely check that out. Again, hummingbird. Central.com humming birdcentral.com and you can look up the uh, spring migration for 2022. So our goal is to be releasing this hummingbird probably after this cold snap here. Um, Even though they are totally fine with the temperature, they can go down to below freezing temperatures. They just kind of go into torpor Um, and there's plenty of fat storage on this bird to be able to survive very cold temperatures as well. They're a lot hardier than most people think. So that's a little bit about our little hummingbird that's overwintering with us and we are excited that hopefully we'll get this bird released here soon. So we really appreciate all the community support and help to be able to rehabilitate patients like this because obviously this is a very long-term patient who, you know, even though it's tiny, you know, is definitely, we're giving it the best care possible with fresh food and all of our resources. So it does take quite a bit of funding to be able to care. So all in all, it's really great to be able to share this story and thank you so much for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. 6.51
1: 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Break out your lawn chairs and your telescopes. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine walks us through some of the major discoveries found in space by amateur astronomers.
11: Good evening and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine and tonight I'd like to talk about something a little bit different to our usual fare. Amateur astronomy. We here at Radio Astronomy talk a lot about the biggest telescopes in the world and the discoveries made on them, from Keck and Subaru on Mauna Kea to Hubble and, of course, JWST in orbit. All of these telescopes have and will make incredible discoveries, but there is one major downside to these telescopes, and that is time. There are a lot more professional astronomers out there who want to have time to observe with the biggest telescopes than there is time available on those telescopes. In fact, the most famous telescopes often get requests for more than ten times the amount of time available. Because of this, the time on those telescopes gets carefully allocated to professional astronomers months or even a year in advance, and if anything sudden and unexpected happens in space during that time, it can be very difficult for those telescopes to respond quickly. This is where amateur astronomy comes in, often quite literally setting up telescopes in their backyards Many amateur astronomers continually monitor the night sky in order to capture short-lived transient events. Tonight, I'd like to talk about a few of the discoveries made by amateur astronomers. Recently, the Astronomical Society of Australia awarded the 2022 Page Medal to two amateur astronomy projects. The first award went to a team of six amateur astronomers from Australia and New Zealand collectively known as the Backyard Observatory for Supernova Search, or BOSS for short. The BOSS team, as their name implies, searches for supernovae in distant galaxies using telescopes set up in their own backyards. It's been estimated that one supernova per day occurs somewhere in the observable universe, but it's very difficult for professional telescopes to observe a supernova in full because there's no way to predict when and where one will occur. This is where small backyard telescopes excel. Because oftentimes they can observe much larger regions of the sky than large telescopes and for longer periods of time. Ideal for spotting supernovae as they occur. Catching a supernova right at the start is critical for understanding the conditions of the star leading up to its demise. To date, the BOSS team has discovered more than 200 confirmed supernovae and are currently looking for more. The second Page Medal went to a former mine worker named Trevor Barry who used his own telescope to monitor Saturn. In 2008, Trevor found a white spot on Saturn that turned out to be a massive electrical storm. Even though Cassini was in orbit around Saturn at the time, and was capable of capturing extremely detailed information about the storm, because of its orbit, it couldn't observe the storm for long periods of time. Trevor kept his telescope on the storm for seven months, the longest observed storm on Saturn. And he continues to provide valuable storm data to NASA based on his observations of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars. Some amateur astronomers don't even need telescopes to make major discoveries. There have been quite a few discoveries that have come out of Zooniverse, a citizen science project primarily operated by the University of Oxford and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. One of the projects operated by Zooniverse is the Galaxy Zoo, where users can look at pictures of galaxies and classify them based on their shapes. In 2009, a Dutch school teacher named Hattie van Arkel was sorting through pictures in Galaxy Zoo when she stumbled on an odd, bright blob of light in images of the galaxy IC 2497 taken by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. She asked around, and no one else knew what the blob was. The blob was given the nickname Forverbje, which translated from Dutch means small object. After more study of the Forverbje... It was determined that it was a cloud of gas near IC2497. At some point in the past, the black hole in the center of IC2497 erupted and became an active galactic nucleus, sending out tons of gas and high-energy light into the surrounding space. Some of that light and gas interacted with the forefront yet ionizing it and causing it to radiate light that we can see on Earth. Since the discovery of the first four furpia in 2009, another nine furpias have been discovered around other galaxies. Our last story tonight comes from another project hosted by Zooniverse, Backyard Worlds Planet Nine. This is a project dedicated to finding brown dwarfs and new planets in our solar system. But amateur astronomers working on this project have made some amazing and altogether unexpected discoveries. Just a few years ago in 2019, German amateur astronomer Melina Tevenot was searching through infrared images in backyard worlds when she stumbled on something odd. She saw a point of light that was too bright and too far away to be a brown dwarf, sometimes referred to as a failed star. It was later discovered that the point of light was in fact a white dwarf, the former core of a low-mass star that has lost its envelope. The white dwarf, nicknamed J0207, was discovered to be about 145 light years away, and more than 3 billion years old based on its temperature. Most remarkably, J0207 showed evidence of dust. Only a few white dwarfs are known to have dust around them, and J0207 is by far the oldest. That dust around J0207 might be the remains of a former planetary system, and future observations of that white dwarf will tell us more about it. As we have seen, anyone with little time and a lot of patience can make extraordinary discoveries in astronomy. Astronomy has always been a collaborative effort, from the largest, most cutting-edge telescopes to folks looking up at the sky from their own backyards. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in. And have a stellar
0: week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6.
1: Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Leahy.
0: Your reporter tonight was Greg Jabowski. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal.
1: Super Dave and engineered the show.
0: Nate Weggy helped produced this newscast.
1: And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Noestro Patio. Good night.